Recently, I had the pleasure of talking to a legend in the world of the English language, David Crystal. He is a linguist, a lecturer, a broadcaster, and he has written or edited over 100 books about language, including the Cambridge Encyclopedia of the English language. We talked about language change, the myth of the native speaker, and why learning a language is part of being human. I hope you enjoy it. David Crystal, thank you very much for, for, for chatting to me today. It's a um, pleasure. Thank you. Um, I, I normally always call all of my guests sir, but I think you're the first person that, since you have an OBE, I can actually, you're officially a, a sir, no? Oh, no, 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 no. The, the OBE doesn't go so high. Um, oh, okay. you know, it's, one, it's one of the grades of awards. You have MBE, then OBE, then CBE. And none of these people are sirs. It's only when you get a knighthood at the very top of the ladder that you dare to be called a sir. But you can call me sir anyway, if you like. Wikipedia, Wikipedia did once. They, they inadvertently knighted me um, until I pointed out that actually this was an error. <laughs> wow. Um, well, I, look, that, that shows my ignorance about, um, about the, you know, the, all these different awards from the Queen. Um, it's still pretty amazing. C congratulations, anyway. Um, well, it's, it's, you know, 25 years ago now. It's a sort of his history, really. But, it, but they're interesting awards. I mean, most people who have a, any sort of streak of humility in them are always a bit reluctant to accept them. But on the other hand, they provide a kind of symbol of recognition for the subject. And my award was given for services to the English language. Well, you know, so many people generally are sort of vaguely aware of the English language, but they're not aware of it as a subject of study or, or its global significance and all the rest of it. So when you get an award like that, I think it draws people's attention to the realities of what's going on out there. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I wanted to ask you, because I know that some of your work is, is related to um, Shakespeare, more specifically about um, using the old English pronunciation with 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 Shakespeare's um, work, because when you actually use the old English pronunciation, it reveals all of these kind of hidden rhymes that 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 just don't appear when you use like the you know the posh received pronunciation, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. That was the motivation for it, really. Well, there were many motivations for this particular original pronunciation, OP, as it's called, movement. Uh, finding rhymes that don't work in modern English was certainly one of the motivations. Yes, if you go to Shakespeare's sonnets, 154 of them, but 96 of them have couplets that don't rhyme in modern English. You know, the pronunciation has moved on. So suddenly you hear the sonnets in a very different kind of way. But it's not just rhymes. Uh, you get a fresh insight into various puns that don't work in modern English simply because the language has changed. You get an insight into new rhythms of lines, a new kind of phonesthetic emerges. You hear the lines in a fresh kind of way. And so for these and all sorts of other reasons, the, the movement started back in 2004, you know, the, the Shakespeare's Globe. Many of the people watching or listening to this may have been to the Globe, and if not, they should go. It's on the south bank of the Thames. 
more or less, not far away from the original sighting of Shakespeare's Globe, which burnt down, you know, in the early uh, 1600s. Um, and that's a theatre devoted to original practices, by which they mean put the plays on in as close as you've got it in an original theatre, uh, with original music on original instruments, with original dress and so on. But they'd never tried pronunciation until they had this experiment in 2004. And the reasoning was quite simply this. If we hear the language in as close as we can get, given the research and so on, to Shakespeare's time, we get that bit closer to Shakespeare as such and to the the, the ethos of the time and the atmosphere of the time. Uh, I mean, some people said, oh, this is very much an academic experiment. No, it wasn't. It was theatre-driven right from the very beginning. People wanted to, to feel they were getting that much closer to Shakespeare and to Shakespeare's language, of course. So that's how it started. And since then, it's become a bit of a movement, really. Um, about, uh, oh, I suppose about 20 of the plays have been done in OP. So there's another, you know, 19 or so to do. And mainly in America, actually, Christian, this, this is the interesting thing. The Americans fell in love with OP because they felt that many American actors and directors have told me when Shakespeare is done in RP, they can't do it. And it doesn't feel natural to adopt an RP accent. Whereas when you listen to OP, it's actually closer to American English than RP is. So suddenly they feel they've got an ownership of it in a way that they didn't have before. So it's very popular in the States at the moment. Wow, that's that's really fascinating, actually. And and that sort of leads me on to my next question, because obviously that that reflects the way that pronunciation has changed um, over the years, you know, since Shakespeare's time. And, and also, obviously, you can see the difference now between British English and American English. Yeah. Oh, but not, um, but not change that much, actually. I mean, yeah. I, I didn't do a piece, but let me just do a few lines now and let your listeners judge how far yeah. has the language changed. Uh, if right. we take the opening lines of Henry V, when the chorus comes to the front of the stage and says, apologizes for the fact they have to put on the Battle of Agincourt in this terrible space, and he says, well, in modern English, you know, oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act and monarchs to behold the swelling scene, and so on. Well, in OP, it would be, oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. And you hear resonances of modern English accents in there, but no English accent says invention, for invention, yeah. for instance. Yeah. So it is very different, but totally intelligible, isn't it? I mean, nobody would have any yeah. trouble with that. Well, I mean, it, it is for me, but I've kind of lived in England, but I don't know. But I imagine that maybe that would be more difficult for an American listener, because to me, it sort of sounds a bit like a West Country farmer. You know? Yeah, because you because you're listening to the R after the vowel, and that is one of the features of it. But there are other sounds in there which are not West Country. For example, a kingdom for a stage, stage, stage. That's Yorkshire, up, isn't it? Yeah. That sort. Of, so, oh, for a muse of fire. Oh, that's more like Welsh or something. And so there is an old mix of accents in there. Americans don't have any trouble with it. And here's the interesting point. People who have are learning English as a second language actually find it easier 
than RP. And one of the reasons is that the R's are pronounced. You know, RP is one of those rare accents where you don't pronounce the R after the vowel in words like car and heart and so on. But here we've got, you know, car and heart. And it immediately makes it more recognizable to most learners who actually would pronounce the R after the vowel in their mother tongue anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I know from my personal experience that for Spanish speakers, you know, they, they, they would gravitate towards a more, you know, rhotic or, or R accent because, um, because for that exact reason, for them, it's more difficult to actually leave it out. Um, <laughs> yes, ex exactly. And as far as uh, Spanish and others are concerned, if they want to put in a trilled R and say, oh, for a muse of fire or something like that, that's perfectly fine too, because that pronunciation of R was current in Shakespeare's day. Wow, really? And, and it's funny because I know that a lot of native English speakers have problems rolling their R's, you know, uh, yeah. now. And that's one of the reasons why we didn't choose that version for the OP that we did at the Globe and ever since. Because I know, yes, uh, some native speakers, many actors indeed, do have trouble rolling their R's. So, so, but I know that maybe, and your example was, was fantastic, so I know that language, the, the pronunciation hasn't changed that much, you know, relatively speaking, but it has changed. And, and I, I saw a video where you said that language change was actually your favorite part of language. It's almost like it's why, you, why the, you're yeah. interested in language, because it changes all the time. That, that's right. Whatever English was like yesterday, it's different today, it'll be different tomorrow. Uh, I mean, that's the best bit as far as I'm concerned, observing language change, wondering why it's happening, um, where it's happening. The other side of language change is language variation, you see. The two things go together, uh, change and variation and, and that side of things, different accents, different dialects, all of that. This is, this is the, the fun part of linguistics for me. Yeah, and well, that sort of leads me on to my next question, because as a, as a teacher of English as a foreign language, um, a lot of learners encounter teachers who talk about um, kind of standard English. And, and I wondered how, how you feel about this idea of a kind of standard English, you know, given what you're just talking about. Well, stand, the notion of standard English, historically, of course, is a, is a written English and, and effectively a printed English. Um, it's, it's the kind of English that everybody used when the language was written down. And even at the beginning, when it standardized, it took 400 years for English to standardize. You know, it start, the movement started around about 1400. And it was really more or less sorted out by 1800. Dr. Johnson in his dictionary, for instance, represents a very clear picture of how English vocabulary and so on was, was standardizing in his day. But ironically, just at the point at which English was settling down into a standard form in Britain, it was beginning to diversify because American English was starting across the pond with Noah Webster uh, and the new nation, and run by 1800, of course, American English existed as a different standard, as an emerging standard, differently from British English. And then later, other educated standards emerged in the written language around the world. So one can talk sensibly about, you know, Australian English and so on very, very effectively. Not that the differences are very great. You know, we're still only talking about two or three percent of the language being different between British English and American English is not a big deal, but it's enough to express the different identities of these different countries. 
So standard English is alive and well, despite the fact that there's a certain amount of variation in it. And when people speak standard English or try to, you know, they might learn it in school or you certainly learn it as a foreign language. Um, then once again, you get a, a general consensus that there are certain features of the English sound system that everybody uses. Otherwise, you're going to be unintelligible. And then you're going to get these this you know few percent of differences like you know I you might say bath or bath in this country but it'll be bath in America you know that kind of small difference which yeah. doesn't usually amount to an intelligibility but it's certainly there so standard English is certainly there despite the fact that there's a certain amount of variation in it so the next question is why have a standard language and the answer to that is to promote intelligibility both nationally and internationally it, it helps us understand each other. And that's one of the two big forces that are driving language. The other big force, as we mentioned earlier, really, is the need for identity. I have to say who I am and where I'm from. And that produces local accents and dialects, both nationally and internationally. So it's the tension now between these two forces, intelligibility saying, let's all speak the same, and identity saying, no, let's be different. And it's that kind of tension that is causing, well, teachers, I imagine, in various parts of the world, a bit of confusion. You know, which force do I allow into my classroom? Well, I think I think maybe, well, the, the reason I ask, I suppose, is because of this general kind of obsession in the world of foreign language teaching with um, everything you do should be modeled on the kind of native speaker. Oh. Um, you know, like a native speaker accent, native speaker grammar, and 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 so. Now, like that's for me, me. That's history for me. Yeah. yeah? Uh, that that's that has gone out of the window with the dodo. I mean, I know there are people around the world uh, who will still maintain it, uh, but it's a myth. Um, there was never a native speaker in the sense of um, somebody who hasn't been influenced by some sort of local variation here and there. Uh, all sorts of mixed accents, people, especially these days, people moving about the country uh, and accommodating to the accent of the place in which they find themselves. Uh, all this kind of variation is, is there. Remember that RP was only ever spoken by about most in its history, 5% of the speakers of England. Remember, not Wales or Scotland or Ireland. And these days it's probably around about 2% of the population. And even RP, of course, has changed its character. So it's no longer the very, very posh, far back kind of accent that we heard, you know, a few decades ago. But go around the English speaking world now and look at the majority of speakers who are out there and try listening for RP and see how often you find it. You know, you can stand at the corner of Oxford Street. And I did this once for a BBC programme and made notes about the accents I heard as I passed by. You know, I could wait for ages. It's like London buses, you know, before one turns up, before an RP accent turned up. And when, when one does turn up, my wife, Hilary, and I often turn to each other and say, hey, RP lives. And we're so <laughs> pleased to hear it, you know, because it's so <laughs> rare. So well, what well, that's are preparing our students for, you know, in terms of listening comprehension, they have got to be made aware of the fact that English is now multiple in its acts. I'm talking about educated English now. I'm not talking about, you know, people who don't have an educated background, people you want to identify with as a learner um, and and mixed accents and and modified RP accents and all sorts of things, American tinged accents and 
connections themselves, of course, all of these things are now absolutely the norm. So from a comprehension point of view, you've got to introduce students to this kind of variation. Otherwise, they're going to be living in a fool's paradise. From a production point of view, of course, nothing necessarily changes. If you're used to teaching RP and all your materials are in RP and that's your, been your life, then by all means teach RP to a student to produce. It's a perfectly reasonable accent, you know, just because it happens to be not so uh, common as it used to be doesn't mean to say it's not got a value. It still has and it'll still be heard, especially on the radio. So there's a difference here, I think, between production and comprehension. Yeah, well, well, just just to just rewind just very slightly, because I know that there are some teachers out there who feel like, and I'm not one of them, but they feel like, well, we need to have this this native speaker model because if we don't, if we don't have this, like, you know, perfect sort of accent and the grammar like native speakers, then what we will do is we will allow chaos, right? If there's no oh, standards, well, then, you know. No, no. Chaos will not happen if the teaching has been good. I mean, one aims for intelligibility always. The question then is, does a local accent interfere with intelligibility? And if it does, then the student has not yet learnt the English language and the teaching has gone horribly wrong somewhere. But let's assume now that we've got somebody who is pretty fluent in English, but has got a pretty strong uh, accent, a Spanish accent, Portuguese accent, French accent or whatever. As long as that person is intelligible to me, I have no problem with that whatsoever. In fact, the intelligibility drive is present. So now it's the identity drive that I'm fascinated by. I love to hear English spoken with a Spanish accent or accents, yep. because, of course, the variety of Spanish accents is really quite extraordinary, especially in South America. I love to hear English spoken with a French accent. Why? But not just because it's delightful, but because it helps me identify who the speaker is. That they, they, they are French. Fine. Well, that, that's what I need to know in order to develop a kind of um, sense of balance between us in having a conversation. In my view, there's only one type of person who needs to speak RP perfectly like a native speaker so that they cannot be identified as a foreigner, and they are spies. Uh, <laughs> I imagine to be a spy, you would you probably need to have that kind of disappearing act in your accent. But apart from them, uh, I don't see any reason whatsoever to aim to become identical to a native speaker. They are not, pe learners are not native speakers. They are foreigners. And I'm the same. If, I, if I'm, I'm learning French or Spanish or whatever language I've learned over the years, then so long as I'm intelligible, uh, I don't want to. I don't want to be a French person or a Spanish person. I want to be me, and I want my accent to reflect that and to let other people know it. And so that kind of climate of increasing acceptance, tolerance, and increasingly respect for different accents, I think, is becoming increasingly the norm. Although recognizing that there is still there's still a great deal of conservatism out there. Mm. No, I mean, look, I totally agree, but. I also know that there are teachers out there who are saying, well, you know, we can't just have people speaking with Spanish or French accents because, you know, we need, it, it's, it's that whole kind of, for me, it's a very um, almost colonialism kind of attitude about, you know, homogenizing the, the language and the, and the people who speak it. 
maybe. Yeah, um, people have people have to realize that that there is no such thing as homogeneity in in language. There is always variation, and as long as the variation doesn't get in the way of intelligibility, then it has to be respected first, and then. Um, fostered, really, because these are markers of identity. And, you know, the difference between intelligibility and identity is not just an intellectual difference. Intelligibility is for the head. Identity is for the heart. You know, who you are, which community you belong to, which community you're proud to belong to. You, you, you want to foster that at the same time, of course, as needing to be understood and, and understand other people who belong to the same language community. Now, the, the, the really disastrous thing uh, in the attitude that you've mentioned is that in many language teaching schools around the world, I understand, um, if you're a native speaker of a language, you, you get paid more uh, than if yeah. you're a non-native speaker of language, even though the non-native speaker of the language may know more about the English language than the native speaker does. And if you ask me who I want to be taught by, uh, do I want to be taught by a native speaker who doesn't know one end of grammar from the other, or by a non-native speaker who is very familiar with English grammar and knows how to teach it, I know who I'm voting for every time. Well, I mean, that is definitely a massive problem in the industry with the discrimination against non-native teachers. Um, and I've seen, like, there's a few Twitter accounts, like there's a Twitter account called TEFL Equity, who, who who sort of post and they fight against um, uh, discriminatory job postings and things like that. And, you know, I, I, I don't know because I don't really work in that field, but I hope that, that with the continuing globalization of English, I hope that that problem will kind of disappear. Mm. I hope. It'll take time, um, mm. Christian. I mean, you know, change doesn't happen overnight and attitudes to change take even longer. And the whole phenomenon of global English, remember, is hardly a generation old. Uh, n nobody was talking about global English in the early 1990s. The, the, the first books on English as a global language, my book, 1997, David Gradol's book, Tom MacArthur's book, all late 1990s. So that the notion of global English, global varieties of English, new English is and all of that, and the need to respect them, not to just dismiss them. It's been an amazingly rapid change, actually, for, you know, what is it, 25 or so years. But it will take a long time, uh, much longer, at least a generation, maybe two, before those old attitudes completely disappear. Because they will only disappear when the people who hold them die. I mean, to be perfectly frank. Uh, yeah, um, and people who, are, who, who, who grow up within this new ethos will one day become into positions of power um, and govern the examination system and all the rest of it. And then that Twitter account will no longer be needed. I wondered if, if we could talk a little bit, because you mentioned there's a difference kind of between intelligibility and, and production. And obviously you, you're a very prolific producer of English. You've written hundreds of books and articles. And, and what, what sort of advice would you have maybe to, to any learners out there and I think this applies to to people who even have English as a first language, you know, native speakers, but also learners. What advice would you give them about converting sort of passive knowledge and being able to to write and express themselves? And you know, what's the secret there? Well, I don't think there's a secret. You know, it's all a matter of ex experience. I mean, there's a certain amount of gift to it, of course. In the case of individual writers, not everybody is good at 
doing that kind of thing. But in order to write, you have to be able to read. And in order to read, you have to be able to speak. Uh, in order to speak, you have to be able to listen. You know, that dependency of writing on reading, on speaking, on listening. It's one of the big uh, emphases in linguistic policy in teaching English in mother tongue education in this country ever since the 1970s. There was a government report that came out then called the Bullock Report, which actually said, you know, we all know that if you want to write, you have to be able to read. We all know that if you want to speak, you have to be able to listen. But hey, folks, don't forget, reading depends on speaking as well. And that link between reading and speaking, I think, is a very important one. And it um, integrating those four mediums of expression is very important. So, for example, uh, take a, a specific feature that you might want to teach. Now, again, I, I can only here give an example from mother tongue education, which I've studied quite a lot, not from the EFL, but I bet there's a parallel in the EFL world. When youngsters of age about seven or eight are writing their first little stories, um, they will write a story something like this. Uh, you know, what did you do at the weekend, says the teacher, and the child writes, I went to the beach and I had an ice cream and I went on a donkey and I ate my ice cream and I came home and I went to bed, right? And the teacher will say, ah, a lovely little story, but there's too many ands in it. And, 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 and. This is not good, good writing. Um, you must do something a bit different here. Let's put some different words in and a good teacher will suggest alternative ways of linking those sentences like, Fortunately, my ice cream was very nice. You know, unfortunately, I fell off the donkey or whatever it might be. Now, the question is this. How does the kid develop a knowledge of those alternative forms of expression? And the answer, first of all, has to be, well, are they in the reading that the kid does? Because the kid will get some very good ideas about which interesting words link sentences if they've read them. So the job of the teacher now is to present the kids with various kinds of little reading material, maybe teacher generated, maybe in print already. Um, there's a lovely book I have here, for instance, called Fortunately, in which page one says, fortunately, this happened. Page two says, unfortunately, this happened. Page three says, fortunately, this happened. And so it goes on all through the book. Now, a kid who is exposed to that kind of reader will soon develop an intuition about what words might be useful to replace the word and in what otherwise might be a boring essay. But it mustn't stop there. Reading depends on speaking. So has the kid spoken those words in everyday conversation? If the kid doesn't, hasn't internalized them as a natural speech style, then there isn't much chance that when they get to the reading stage, they're gonna really understand what it is they're reading. So you want to check that the, these words are within the speech competence of the eight-year-old or the nine-year-old. To take an absurd example, you wouldn't recommend a nine-year-old to say something like notwithstanding, for instance. That's much older, but you might recognize, recommend sort of fortunately or something of that sort. So the job of the teacher here is to accumulate a good set of words, sentences, adverbials, if you like, sentence connecting adverbials, which are going to be within the linguistic competence of a normal, well, what age are they teaching? Seven-year-old, eight-year-old, 15-year-old, whatever it might be. And then the final stage, all right, the kid might not be using them so much in their speaking, but have they heard them in their listening? 
to what extent are these words being used in the speech being used to the kids? And here I've seen teachers develop some lovely little strategies in which, for example, uh, they say, uh, I'm going to tell you a story. Put your hand up if you notice something going wrong. And so the story goes something like this. Uh, um, last week, we went to the football match. The football stadium was a long way away, so we had to get the bus. Fortunately, the bus was late. You know, stop, and stop, there's a problem. Stop, there's a problem, you know, that kind of thing. So they're tuning in to the to those crucial words in their listening. So there we go. Listening leads to speaking, leads to reading, leads to writing. And that kind of strategy um, in relation to the use of the word and, for instance, now can be replicated for any aspect of grammar that a teacher might want to introduce. So that's how I see um, the bridge being made uh, between, you know, speaking and, and reading and writing and and, and, of course, production and comprehension, therefore. I also saw in another one of your videos um, that, that you said that it was really important. Uh, yeah, you said it was really important to just play with language, like to just have fun with language. Um, and is that is that just in terms of, um, like, wh why is that? Is that just to help you to, to learn to express yourself? or to generate more of an interest in why, why do you think it's important to, to play with language? Because it's the normal human condition. Um, everybody plays with language or enjoys language play, no matter who they are, what their background is, and so on. Of course, the type of play they go in for uh, is going to differ. Some people like to play with crossword puzzles. Some people like to play Scrabble. Uh, there are all kinds of types of language play. Some people like riddles. Some people like jokes. Some people like puns. Some people hate puns. Uh, there are all kinds of differences out there. Now, where does it all come from? It comes from the very beginnings of language acquisition. From the very moment you're born, you are entering a world of language play. Uh, nobody who's just been born is going to hear the people around them say, you know, Good morning, baby. You are a baby and you are in a hospital. I am the midwife. Here is your mother and so on. That is not the kind of language you hear. What you hear is, oh, you lovely little baby. You're a gorgeous baby. Yes, you are. And all that sort of thing, which is totally language play. And throughout the first year of life, it's been estimated by those who have studied this sort of thing in language acquisition, that something like 80% of the language that a, an, an infant hears is some sort of language play. And it's only as you approach the first year end and into the second year of life that you get the more serious teaching stuff coming along, you know, like that's the hot tap. Don't you touch the hot tap. That's the cold tap. You can touch the cold tap, but you mustn't touch the hot tap. And this sort of thing is a later development. Very important, of course, for survival. <laughs> but at the same time, the, uh, the basis of your existence is grounded in language play. And so I think it's part of the normal human condition. When I said before that there are two big forces driving language, intelligibility and identity, maybe I should have said three forces, intelligibility, identity, and ludicity, the ludic function of language, the playful function of language, just as important. And in some cultures of the world, more important. I mean, you know, it's not really recognized so strongly in 
at least Western the cultures I know, but if you go to places, countries in Africa, for instance, the emphasis on oratory and playfulness and the power of language is a basic feature of becoming a grown-up person. And, and they, they treat that with such seriousness, as it were, such respect, that you get the feeling that um, speech play is... Uh, we're actually missing out a little bit on speech play in our tradition, whereas a number of these other countries have got a lot to teach us. Yeah, I, I remember I was in London recently and I went to Speaker's Corner, which is, mm. I think, is it in Hyde Park? I think it's part yeah. of... Honor yeah, Hyde Park. And, yeah, and... Um, but now it's only like once a week on a Tuesday or something. And I, and I remember thinking, oh, that's so sad because isn't it fantastic that someone could just get up and just sort of maybe passionately deliver this speech, you know, not, you know, without YouTube, without a million people watching, just, you know, just there for that tiny audience. And, and it's sort of part of the, the wordplay tradition and it's, that's yeah, this is this is more than wordplay, though. This is also eloquence uh, as mm. well as wordplay. I mean, the wordplay will come into it. The language play generally because it's not just words uh, will come into it. And the more you can play with language, the more you're likely to have your audience warm to you. And they'll remember what it is you've been telling them because everybody loves a joke or a story or whatever it might be. Yeah. But we're talking here more about an, an eloquence in public, which... Um, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Gift of the Gab, How Eloquence Works. And in that, I was anxious to draw attention to the fact that everybody is actually naturally eloquent. We, we grow up being eloquent. But of course, eloquence here means I can tell you a story. I can tell you a joke, just me and you. And now telling it to 20 people or 30 people, ah, that brings in a different set of issues. So that natural eloquence can be uh, oppressed, really, either by lack of practice or lack of opportunity, because how often in schools do students uh, really get the chance to show off their eloquence? That's why I love these schools, especially at secondary level, where they have you know, debating societies and things like this, or they have a period where they give each student individually time to speak in front of the class. And some of them find it very difficult to begin with, but within a year, uh, they're, they're as eloquent as anybody else. And it's lovely to see that kind of development happening. So with appropriate educational support, that natural eloquence, you know, we could all be Hyde Park speaker corners, um, corner, <laughs> Hyde Park corner speakers. <laughs> uh, if, if we wanted to be, uh, so long as we've got something to say, of course, that's the other big thing. Eloquence is not just a matter of delivery of how you put it over. It's also a matter of content, having something you think people will need to want, 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 want to listen to. Yeah, well, well, actually, that's that's something I've been talking about recently in, in some of my videos, because my father-in-law gave me this book and it's from it was published in 1939. And the book's called How to Write and Speak and Think Correctly. And the first, the first thing that struck me about the book was, I don't think that you would see a book published in 2019 which conflated writing and speaking and thinking. Now they seem to be separate kind of domains. But back then, it was all part of the same thing. Um, and in the book, they say, basically, there's a passage that says exactly that they say, Everyone prefers for you to say something badly, but have something to say, 
than to say something than to have nothing to say and say it in perfect language. Yeah. This conflict or contrast between delivery and content goes back, of course, 2000 years or more. Uh, you know, the, the, the classical thinkers were debated this endlessly. Is delivery more important than content? And the ideal, of course, is to have some sort of balance uh, be yes. between the two. Um, OK, just one 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 final sort of question I I want to talk about. So because because I. You know, my experience again is with with a lot of foreign learners, and and you know, learning a learning a language, any language is really really difficult, and it takes a really long time. In fact, I, I believe you yourself you've described learning a language as like climbing a mountain, right? Yeah, unless unless you're a, a newborn baby, in which case <laughs> you will have learnt your language by five, or at least languages, because remember multilingualism is the normal human condition and uh, there's no problem at all for a kid picking up two three four languages by the time they're five uh, to, to a certain level of course yes but yeah as yes. you get older it does become more like a mountain yeah it does it's like climbing a mountain and you know i know that there are so many um students out there who who you know maybe they're at the intermediate stage of learning a language when things you know, when the difference in your ability becomes much more difficult to see, you know, your it feels like your language learning is plateaus. Um, and maybe or, or or maybe there are students out there who who've tried to learn English and they've failed because, you know, a bad class or or whatever. Um, so what why, why do you think it's important to learn a language? Like why, why should people keep trying to do that? You know? Well, let me first of all um, say that the metaphor of the mountain, uh, when I used it, I talked about uh, vocabulary being the Everest of language. It was vocabulary I was thinking of more than anything else, not pronunciation, not grammar. Those aren't mountains, really, you know. Uh, when you think about it, the, if you're learning English, there are, depending on the accent, 40, 44 sounds that you have to learn. Well, that's not a big deal really it might take you a while to get your tongue around them but you know any anybody can handle that number of sounds within a, a reasonably short period of time when you get on to grammar leaving aside some of the most sophisticated forms of grammar you might get in literary expression or very advanced scientific language or what have you we're only talking about what you know i did the index to the big quirk grammar the comprehensive grammar of the english language when you count up all the points about grammar that are in that big book, there are about 3,500 of them. So that might seem like a lot to a beginner, but come on, 3,500 points, you can handle that over a period of four or five years or something, and most of them you'll get in the first year. But vocabulary, wow, now we are talking about an Everest because because how many words are there in the English language? Well, nobody knows, but you know, at least a million, probably far more than that. And your, your competent average native speaker adult will have a vocabulary of about you know, 50, 60,000 words, something of that order of magnitude. Well, that is a task. And I remember very well from my own learning of foreign languages, you know, I could handle the pronunciation and the grammar to a reasonable extent quite quickly, but the vocabulary, that is the killer. You know, how do you get all that under your belt? And that, to my mind, is the, the, the biggest problem when people get to that intermediate stage. They've, they've, 
they can do conversations now very well. You know, they've got a pretty solid command of grammar. Uh, they've got the pronunciation pretty well. They can even probably write it and spell it reasonably well too. Who knows? But the vocabulary, you just think, oh no, I mean, I just don't <laughs> know these words that are coming up. And that can be the the the, the slippery slope into depression, it seems to me. And so now, here's the interesting point, Christian, at least it seems to me so. What we need now is good techniques for teaching vocabulary. And where are they? You know, where are the good vocabulary teaching materials? Piles of grammar teaching materials all over the place, pronunciation materials everywhere. But vocabulary often still, I, I, I observe in classrooms or read new textbooks, and the chapter by chapter organization is, you know, to do with a grammatical point. And at the end, it says, here's the vocabulary you need in order to understand this chapter. Learn that off by heart, you know, and you have to you sort of learn this set of words that turned up in the chapter. There's no structural approach to vocabulary. A kind of semantic structural approach is very definitely needed. Now, I do see some signs of this happening um, at an academic level and in applied linguistics. But when you get down to the classroom, I mean, you tell me, I mean, is there a good structured vocabulary graded thing that would take you all the way through for that intermediate period i don't know of one no i think i think that that at that point most teachers just say look just you just have to start reading and yeah and i and pick yeah. it up that's right you pick it yeah. up that's that's the oh the, the solution that, that i hear more often than anything else that is not how vocabulary should be taught i mean I, i'll give you an example from from shakespeare um, because I've spent a lot of time recently, uh, along with Sun Ben, writing books on Shakespearean vocabulary. There's an illustrated Oxford Shakespeare dictionary, for instance. And one of the things we decided to do was introduce the notion of word families. And that you don't learn one word, you learn the cluster of words of which that word is a part. Or transferring that now to the ELT situation, if the word necessary turns up in the chapter you've just been reading, then you don't just say, learn the word necessary, you say, learn the word necessary and its opposite, unnecessary, at the same time, and also learn necessity, and develop a little set of family, a family of necessary type words, which you assimilate at the same time. Now, that kind of family approach, I find, is, is very, very useful, but I don't, again, I don't know of any really structured set of materials that are built on it. Yeah. I mean, I know I know that among learners of languages, um, flashcard programs like Anki or Memrise, you know, they're really popular. But, but you know, I think every learner is different. You know, some people love flashcards. Personally, I couldn't think of anything worse. And, <laughs> no, I don't like them either much. And I don't really, I think probably the missing link, as you sort of say, is fine, you have a word in your brain, but it's not really connected to anything. So... And the science seems to tell us that, that that means it's probably going to be difficult for you to actually produce yeah. when necessary, right? That's right. And also very time-consuming because you learn necessary uh, in January, you learn unnecessary in October. You, you, <laughs> and you sort of don't bring the two together. Whereas yeah. it's easy to introduce a teaching strategy where you say, this is necessary, that is unnecessary. Going back to the kids, you know, at age one to two, yeah, darling, don't touch the hot tap. You can touch the cold one, hot, cold, hot, cold. The kid is learning two words at a time. And this structural approach in semantics where you talk about 
opposites, antonyms, talk about synonyms, talk about hyponyms, you know, uh, tulip is a kind of flower, uh, in the relationship of inclusion. All of these structural things could very easily make the task of learning vocabulary uh, a lot easier. Well, it's definitely an interesting approach. I never really thought about about it being a, a kind of a missing piece of, of, of teaching. It's really interesting what you're saying, actually. Well, I, you know, and here I have to say once again, you know, I don't know. Uh, I don't know whether there are people out there who, having heard me speak just now, will say, hey, David, I've been doing this for ages in my class. And some of people probably have, especially if they've had a background in linguistics where in semantics they would have been introduced to what's called structural semantics, where these notions of synonymy and antonymy and so on are there. And increasingly, um, dictionaries are beginning to build in aspects of this kind of approach into, into their uh, alphabetical lists. You know, an alphabetical list in a dictionary is a disaster, really, semantically. It's very convenient. It's arbitrary, though, right? Totally. You have, you have the, my aunt uh, is in letter A and my uncle is in letter U. You know, the two are never brought together. But some dictionaries now, I mean, I'm thinking of things like the Longman lexicon, where you get clusters of semantically related words embedded within the alphabetical structure of the dictionary. Um, and that kind of approach I've always found to be extremely illuminating, and I believe it's quite successful. So um, ju ju just to finish up, um, what, what would you say um, to people who, you know, to people who really, really want to learn a language, but they're lacking motivation, like what, 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 what is like a really great reason or some great reasons to learn a language? Well, a whole cluster of, of things, I suppose. Uh, the fact that, that we are living in a multilingual and multicultural world. Um, you know, why climb mountains? Because they're there, you know, and these languages are there. So if you're curious about the nature of the planet and what it means to be human, then you've got to very quickly uh, start addressing the question of well, why, why are all these differences there? It's a matter of temperament, partly. Some people are only interested in similarities. But I, for one, and I think perhaps I'm in the majority, are interested in differences. I don't want to spend my whole life just talking to the people I know um, who have exactly the same background as me. Uh, I, I want to find out about the diversity that really will give me an insight on what it means to be human. There are something like 6,000 languages in the world. I'd love to study all of them because each one has an individual insight into the nature of the human condition that no other language has got. Uh, and the more I learn another language, not to fluency level necessarily, mind, you know, just enough to get a sense of what it's like, what it's about, how the people think in it, and so on, uh, then this illuminates me and my language more than anything else. So there's that, all those theoretical sort of reasons. And then there are the practical reasons, of course. So I'm trying to sell you some goods, uh, and I know your language, or at least a bit. Aren't you going to buy from me because I know your language? Whereas if I say, I want to sell you some goods, but you've got to learn English, mate. Uh, sorry. Uh, I, I, I just can't be bothered to learn your language. You're going to buy my goods now? All that sort of economic kind of argument is increasingly important in this day and age. They're just two of the reasons. You know, there are a host of other reasons as well. Um, what people need is the two crucial things, motivation, which I've been talking about. But the other big factor is 
opportunity and that is much trickier and by opportunity i mean you know it's got to be there in the educational system it's got to be there in the cultural system people more far more people would be learning foreign languages in this country and i guess it's the same in many others if if foreign language learning was um given the the national respect that it needs and by national respect i mean things like prizes you know if you, if you're a physicist you want the nobel prize don't you if you're a literature person you want the nobel prize why is there no nobel prize for languages why are there no internationally recognized prizes at that level there's a templeton prize for progress in religion why isn't there a templeton type prize for progress in languages why have languages been left off the agenda here why did nobel ignore languages so much this puzzles me greatly and it seems to me that if we could build into our international society uh criteria like that uh prize day prizes um language days there are some of those we do have some international language days mother tongue language day for example but even so lingua pax has a little prize for instance there are a few things around but nothing major and that's the sort of perspective within which people would say oh learning a language is not just useful for me because i might sell some goods and not just useful for me because i might uh, learn something about uh, other languages which will illuminate me no it's because language learning is valued by society at an international level it's starting to happen at an endangered language level people are realizing that of those 6000 languages half of them are so seriously endangered they're going to die out in the course of the present century and this is beginning to worry people and people are starting to do something about it but i'm not just talking about endangered languages here i'm talking about all the languages of the world it's that kind of international value we need to see present and it's still still a long way off from that so that would help enormously i think wow that's um that that is definitely an approach that i never i never thought Th these are this is why i love um talking to people who who you know who are in the same you know who work in this field because i don't know there's always it's just new perspectives for me right new perspectives well, for me and and for me and for and for your your speakers too because yeah. uh, the, 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 the the it's been very interesting the set of questions and where you're coming from as it were makes me think of the answers in a totally different way from the way i might have answered them before and so yeah. it's always a a, a mutual um, benefit from this kind of interaction so you know thanks thanks very much christian for the opportunity and uh, <laughs> may 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 the, may the force be with you <laughs> thank you sir no honestly it, the pleasure has been entirely mine um and again thank you very much for your time right. i really appreciate it well it's it. a pleasure all power to you okay thank bye. you sir thank you bye, bye.